Good morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the truth we've been singing, that we belong to you. That's, that's the very truth we're going to find, not in a contemporary song, but in your timeless word. Give me grace to explain it. Give me grace to live it. Give those who hear your word, take it to heart so that it may change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. It's been quite a week here on the corner of Warner and Nichols. Earlier this week, I thought that uh, Brazilian carnival had broken out in our neighborhood or that perhaps I was back in the kind of parade that I often witnessed and occasionally participated in when I was growing up in Mexico. I started hearing whistle blasts and chanting in the neighborhood. And eventually it came uh, to my attention that that was not a celebration. It was a parade of sorts, but it wasn't a celebration. It was a labor protest taking place right across the street. You may have heard. Have you heard? Don't worry, this is not a commentary on labor relations. I don't know anything about it. All I know about trash collection in the city of Huntington Beach is that it's my job to take our trash to the curb on Wednesday mornings. And I occasionally forget to do even that and have to ask somebody else to help uh, because I forgot. I don't know what's going on. I am assured on the city's Instagram account that the trash will be picked up by someone sometime. And failing that, they're going to provide giant dumpsters so that you can take your trash, that all will eventually be well. But in the meantime, there's whistling, and there's protesting, and there's chanting, and there's signs, and there's a dispute. And what it reminded me of is that nothing in this world has any grace in it. See, what's happening out in front of our church, it happened for a few minutes, and then they... Uh, kindly, I think, moved it further down the street so that we could have peace and quiet. I really appreciate that. There's no grace in that difference, in that altercation. It's only a negotiation. There's leverage and there's power on both sides. The sides are very different. One is the side of labor, of the guys that pick up the trash. I don't know what their demands are. I don't know if they're fair or not but they want something in return. And the people who run that company and answer to shareholders, they've got power of their own. They can refuse to provide for their demands. And labor can say, well, if you won't meet our demands, guess what? We're not going to pick up the trash. And when the citizens start calling to yell at you, then we'll see how it goes. How it's going to turn out? I have no idea. I just know this. There's no grace in it. There is only power, there is only leverage, there is only negotiation. And it's a snapshot, really, of all of life. You may have noticed there's not much grace baked into everyday life, hardly at all. You get a bill and you check it. If it's 25% more than you agreed to pay, do you just pay it? That was not a rhetorical question, I'm asking. <laughs> If they overcharge you by 25% or fail to deliver for something you've already paid, you say, that's okay. We all make mistakes. It's a hard time for all of us. I'm sure it'll be fine. Do you, do you pay that bill anyway? Of course not. You don't show up for work. What happens to you, most likely? You get fired. Or the machinery kicks in to defend your rights against their rights. And 
Lawyers get involved, unions, advocates, friends, everybody comes rallying around, and there's no grace in it at all. That's life. We've been taught, we've been acculturated, everything in the human heart calls out, not for grace, but only for fairness, for justice. If you don't believe that, just go to any preschool. Two-year-olds already have a keenly developed sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust. They yell and scream at each other if verbal negotiations don't succeed, sometimes they turn to the means of violence. And if you won't let me have the toy, maybe I'll snatch it out of your hand and hit you with it. (laughs) There's no grace in it at all. That's life. A few years ago, one of my sons was awarded an ROTC scholarship for the Army. And I was talking to his man that was his boss for a while, a colonel running that particular program at that particular college, and he explained it to me like this, Mr. Garner, the United States Army is not going to give your son anything. We don't do that. We're going to loan him money. And if he can make the grade, he'll pay it back with service. If he can't make the grade, we're going to make him pay it back with money. No grants, no freebies. My grandmother used to say a saying, I think it's fallen out of favor, but my grandma would say, there's no free lunch. Somebody's paying for that. In fact, this week, or last week rather, we had a bit of an alarming situation at our house. We have a wonderful young man who's been staying with us for a little while, and he had been praying for a new computer. He's gone back to school, he's praying for a new computer, and he needs one. And he came home with a very nice Apple computer through the front door, fresh in the box, and told me this alarming story, that somebody on the street was giving out free Apple computers, (laughs) and they had given it to him. Did you hear your reaction? That was my exact reaction. I thought, there's no way. Local pastor arrested and perp-walked out of his house after it is discovered that he is holding and distributing stolen goods. That was my imagination. What was actually happening was some crazy YouTuber was actually giving away legitimate computers that he had purchased. But even that's not free. He's giving them away. What's he getting out of it? Fame. Fame. He's getting views. He's getting notoriety. See how cool I am giving this to this needy soul right here? See how happy he is? I did that. Make sure you tune into my channel for my latest shenanigans. Everybody's working on something. There's always an angle. We've been taught by life, the human heart, our own and that of our fellow man and fellow woman that nothing really is free, that everybody's always working an angle, that people have to be watched, that doors have to be locked, that accounts have to be checked, that bills have to be verified, and that in those rare instances where someone treats us with actual grace, most of us have at least a tingle of suspicion because there is no grace in this life. At best, at best, and that's hard to find, there's justice. Which is why the passage that we're reading today is so countercultural. The first part of it is so well known, so well taught, so well preached, so well understood by everybody who's actually a Christian that it will seem to you like old news. It's the best news you've ever heard, but it will be old news. The second part, however, is undertaught, underappreciated, underobeyed. And the last part I want to make probably 
offer you a gentle course correction in the way you've been thinking about the Lord's return. But this message, this passage, is all about the effect that grace should have on Christians. Open your Bibles with me, please. And though I've printed the outline on your sheet, if you have your Bible, please keep your Bible handy because we will look at another place in it as well that is not printed on the sheet. I'm in Titus chapter 2, please, in verse 11. Here's the context. Here's the backdrop. You're reading somebody else's mail, quite literally. The Apostle Paul sent a letter to a young man named Titus. Titus was one of Paul's most beloved and trusted co-workers in the gospel. Paul was an ultra-Orthodox Jew who was set about to establish his own righteousness by keeping all the rules and traditions he found not only in Scripture, but also that his group of Judaism, the Pharisees, had invented. Paul sincerely believed that he and others could achieve a righteousness of their own by scrupulous, careful obedience to God's law. Then he met Jesus, who Paul thought for a long time was an imposter. And he was overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus to understand that Jesus actually was the one that God had promised who had died on a cross, risen from the grave, that it wasn't a hoax, it wasn't a made-up story to manipulate and pervert and distort the faith of his people and destroy his own nation. God had actually, in Paul's lifetime, kept his promises. Jesus had lived righteously, died unjustly, and risen again to pardon and forgive and love people like Paul. That understanding completely transformed Paul's life. He spent the rest of his life going into the hardest and most unreached parts of the Roman Empire to tell people everywhere about Jesus. And Paul left Titus, because Paul couldn't do it all, he left Titus behind in a nation that still exists in Crete to set a few things in order to supply what was still lacking in that church to correct false teaching to appoint appropriate and qualified pastors to lead the churches that were following Jesus springing up in Crete. And at the end of chapter at the end of the chapter we're in in Titus chapter 2 Paul is telling Titus about the foundation of grace that underlies and supports all of the activity he's been doing. The first and the second chapter are very, very practical. They're filled with things that Titus is to do. When we come to this passage, Paul is explaining why. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is If you wanted to summarize Paul's teaching and Paul's life, everything that Paul is living and will eventually die for, into one phrase, this would be it. The grace of God. Paul wants to explain that the only God that exists is a God filled with grace that shows His grace primarily and supremely through the gift of His own Son. The grace of God has appeared. That is language that would have been recognized by Titus as the appearance of Jesus himself. Grace is not an abstract concept. Paul's not a theoretician. He is saying that grace had a face on earth. Grace is an actual person that came to live among us. His name is Jesus. And the grace of God has appeared. Here's the first thing that grace does. It brings salvation for all people. What we're celebrating at Christmas is the appearance of the grace of God which brings salvation for all people. 
And someone will say, well, then why is Paul striving so hard? Why all this effort? Why endure all this persecution if everyone is going to be saved? If God is bringing salvation for all people, that means everybody's going to be saved and forgiven. So there's, there's no point in doing all that Paul's doing, right? Well, when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, he doesn't mean at all that every individual will be saved. That much is clear to me just in this same letter. If you have your Bible open in Titus chapter 1, look in verse 15. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Does that group of people sound like people who are at peace with God to you? They're very far from God. Their minds are corrupted. They're incapable of doing any good work. All of this is true because they will not believe God. So when Paul says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, he can't possibly mean it would deny the message of Jesus and the message of Paul and Paul's human physical sacrifice to do his best so that everyone could hear about Jesus for Paul here to be saying, don't worry about it, everybody's going to be saved. Every... Anyway, what Paul is telling Titus in this difficult place where he is confronting false teaching, spiritual immaturity, people trying to drag baby Christians back into false religious teaching, Paul says to Titus, Titus, the first thing that grace does for us is this. It gives us the confidence that Jesus can save anyone. Not that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be because the grace of God has appeared among us. The grace of God is so vast, so deep, it reaches so high, it stretches out its arms so wide that anyone, regardless of their history, even if they were complicit in murder, even if they were blasphemers as Paul once was, anybody can be saved. That includes even the likes of us. Any one of you can be saved. Jesus could save even me. Jesus said so. Luke 19, verse 10. It's on your notes. Will you read the words of Jesus with me, please? Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus said this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. Christian, do you remember? You remember being lost? Do you remember being far from Jesus? If you don't, I would gently point out to you that perhaps you're not actually a Christian. Because the Christian testimony is found in the words of an old hymn. I, was one, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. We pass from death to life. From darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's the gospel story. That's what Paul is reminding Titus in a difficult place where people are notoriously wicked. Where false teachers have followed Paul to try to subvert and destroy the very beginnings of the gospel work in that tough nation 
Titus, remember, the grace of God has appeared among us. Jesus actually lived. It's all real. It's all true. It actually happened. Grace has a name. His name is Jesus. He was sent by God as promised in our scriptures. He can save me. He did save me. He can save you. He can save the people you're ministering to. However much they oppose you, however hard they are on you, whatever lies they have believed, whatever deception they are, in, they are trapped in, they can be saved by Jesus because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Christian, never forget your testimony. If you can continually remember how Jesus saved you and what he saved you from, you can keep yourself grateful and worshipful for life in the constant memory that you have been saved, that once your eyes were closed, but then Jesus opened them. That once you were in darkness, but then the light of God shone into your heart and saved you. I'm continually trying to remind myself, as different as my testimony is, that Jesus saved me. Here's what I mean. Forgive me if you've heard this before. If you've been in church for a long time here, you've heard it several times, but our family's entire course was changed two generations ago. On both sides of my family, there were wicked men, bad guys, notorious in their wickedness. My father's side, my grandfather, my dad's dad, came out of World War II, a blasphemous, violent alcoholic ruining his family. But then, by the grace of Jesus, he heard the gospel and he believed it. And he believed it so radically that he immediately started preaching it. In fact, he started preaching it so quickly after understanding that Jesus had saved and that Jesus loved him. Record has it that the early sermons were not very good. He preached an early sermon on the book of Job, for instance. He knew that Jesus had saved him, but he hadn't been in church long enough for anybody to actually say the name Job out loud. So he just read it in his Bible. He understood what it said. He didn't know how to say it. So he preached a great sermon on the book of Job and a sweet little old lady, as so many little ladies have helped me after I preached, came to him and said, son, that was a good sermon, but you should know the man's name is Job. How embarrassing. But because the gospel came into my family's life, that changed everything for my dad. He was actually born into a Christian home. And I was raised in a very, very different way. I was raised with love. I not only heard the gospel early, but I saw the gospel lived out in front of me by my mom and dad as an only child from my earliest memory. And for a while, that made me kind of sad because I used to go to youth camps and they'd always bring up someone like my grandpa. Some notorious criminal scoundrel talk of the town bad guy and he would have this amazing testimony of how bad he'd been and how Jesus came in and I was lamenting as a young man to somebody that I didn't have a cool testimony like that. I only had my grandpa's story. He said, Bruce, don't you realize how blessed you really are? That Jesus, in your case, his salvation was not to pull you out of that, but to keep you out of all of it in the first place? That's what I keep in mind. Whatever your story was, whether you're, you were saved out of much that was already happening or salvation came early in life before you had made a practical disaster of your life, it's grace that covers all of it. And never forget it. If you lose sight of the meaning of this Christmas 
and every Christmas that this is the beginning of God keeping His promises specifically and personally through His Son. That the first coming guarantees the second. That the first coming means that Jesus has borne all of the temptations of every human being that ever lived and triumphed over them. And he gave his righteousness in perfect obedience to his father, the things that you could not and would not do. The righteousness that you and I would not practice in our minds and with our bodies, Jesus did all of it in spite of facing all of our temptations and that he literally took our place. That's what Paul means when he says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And that part of the gospel story, if you're a Christian, if you've been in church for more than a few weeks, that should be really clear. That you are not only forgiven, you are accepted and you are loved because, verse 14, you were saved by the one who gave himself for us to redeem us. You're not only pardoned, you're loved, you're free, you're accepted, you're in the family. Everything has changed because grace has come. That should be super clear, super obvious to you if you actually are following Jesus. But the next part, that part doesn't get as much play. That part doesn't get as much attention by Christians. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Read verse 12 with me, please. Training us to renounce ungodliness. We're off to a terrible start. I'm going to start again. Ready? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Read with me. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Salvation not only saves us and gives us the confidence that any one of us, any one of our relatives, any one of our friends can be saved, grace then stays with us and does something else, something different. Not something better, grace just does the next thing according to verse 12. What is that next thing that grace does for us? It, what? It trains us. Grace not only saves, the second effect of grace is that grace trains us. Specifically, it trains us to be like Jesus. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us also to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are being trained by the same grace that saved us to be like Jesus. And this part is undertaught. There's a, co a common, shallow understanding of grace. It is sufficient for salvation, but it is not sufficient for growth. That Jesus has stepped into the world faced my temptations, carried my sin to the cross, paid for it. I am now free and accepted and loved. I am God's beloved child. I am redeemed by Jesus. I'm bought out of slavery to sin. I'm brought into the loving adoption into his own family. All well and good. That will save you. That is the beginning of the gospel message. If that is all you ever hear, you can believe that alone and be saved and accepted and loved in God's family. But if you have the privilege and the opportunity to continue to live in the life that Jesus gave you, in other words, if you have more than a deathbed conversion, 
If you have more time than the thief who died on the cross beside Jesus, if your life continues with the grace of Jesus that saved you, what God wants to do then is to train you. To train you. And training, as this verse shows us, always has two parts. Anyone who's training for anything gets rid of some things and embraces others. Would you, as an example, would you believe me if I told you that I've been training for a marathon for the last six months? Did you hear the laughter? First of all, that was very rude, and my feelings are, <laughs> my feelings are extremely wounded. But you're right to laugh. Of course you wouldn't believe it. Because you've seen me having donuts. You haven't seen me running. People who are in training reject some things and pursue others. That's what training always is, and that's exactly what this verse says. It trains us to renounce the old life, to get rid of ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the old way of living when we were under our own administration. When sin and self and pride was running the show, we renounce the old life, and then it says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, we embrace the life of Jesus. Please listen to this, church. It's so very important. Please don't stop with grace knowing that you are saved by the grace of Jesus and then being done with it, acting as if you belong to yourself. You don't. Verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You've never run the show. Ever. Either sin was running it or Jesus is going to run it. Those are the only options. Those are biblical categories. That's not a preacher making stuff up to manipulate people spiritually. This same apostle Paul speaks of us being either servants and slaves, either to sin or to righteousness. You are a creation. You are not an accident. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not the result of a random collection of stardust, of electrical and chemical impulses that somehow improbably came together to make you you. No, you were made by God in his own image to love him and enjoy him forever. But sin came in, you chose your own path, you were lost in your own particular way, and God in his great love sent his son after you. So you will have to decide whether you will let the sin that is killing you continue to run your life until it actually takes it, or whether you will surrender to the Savior who came for you to seek and to save the lost, to redeem you, to buy you back from that slavery so that you could be his, so that you could be beloved, so that you could be accepted, so that God could call you not only a servant, but God could call you his own son, his own daughter. People who know that they have been loved like this, that they are saved like this, then realize that grace not only came for them, but grace stays with them, and they gladly accept the training of grace so that they will become like the Jesus who saved them. Look again in verse 12. It says grace is training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We're renouncing the old life. We're embracing the new life. That word training is really important in the New Testament. Spectacular scholar at Biola University named Fred Sanders really helped me with this this week. He explains that Paul had several choices when he wrote the word training in the Greek New Testament. We've been reading in English, Paul wrote it in Greek. And the word that Paul chose for training, it goes beyond vocational training or military training or something, military training or something like that. It is the word in the ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul was a part of that spoke about how young people were formed, shaped, educated, civilized. In other words, it was the word they chose to explain how people become fully functioning, civilized, intelligent, contributing, virtuous people. Why did Paul choose that word? Because this training is not just for a task, it's for life itself. Jesus is determined through his grace to make him like you. That's why we call ourselves, and that's why people from literally the times of the New Testament, people who were living in the time of Jesus were called Christians. The whole point is that those who claim Jesus and follow Jesus are to remind people of Jesus. And this grace, along with the grace that God gave to save you, he's also giving that same grace to train you, to change you. And please listen, this is not a legalistic effort. It's the response of beloved people. This doesn't mean that Jesus saves you and you take it from there. And that it is through your own efforts that you will become like him. No, you need to respond, you need to obey, but it's grace that is driving all of it. This is really important and it really came home to me in the last few days. I've been listening to a very long and serious piece of journalism through a podcast about the explosion of an American church that was described when it collapsed as the Enron of American churches. The Christian who's doing the journalism told the story from the very beginning, how the church began, how it grew, how many lives were changed. I remember those days a long, long time ago, but I was changed, I was helped, I was blessed by that ministry in its early days. I was challenged and convicted by it. And it grew exponentially. Tens of thousands of people called this single church their home, their family. But the story is interesting because of what happened next. At the highest levels of that church's leadership, there were, became a greater interest in self-serving. They became sinful and prideful and manipulative. This isn't conjecture. Some of the people who were responsible for the disaster are actually in the audio saying, that's what I did. I was wrong. I was sinful. I'm still trying to reconcile with the people that I hurt. That's the story. But what captivated me about it was the journalist doing his best to interpret the historical facts said that what he thought went wrong at the heart of that church culture was that the message was that you are saved by grace, but then where people were given a great legalistic burden to become like the people who were preaching to them. 
to take the lives of other human beings and make very specific cultural, personal choices, and that if you didn't fit in that mold, you weren't mature, you weren't spiritual, you weren't godly. It created a terrible legalistic atmosphere that hurt a lot of people because most couldn't live up to it. I'm telling you that story because the word picture that was used was this. The gospel was telling people in that church that Jesus had broken their shackles and raised them from the dead. But then the culture and the expectations placed on the people put the chains back on and buried them all over again. When I tell you that grace is here to train you to be done with your old life and to embrace the life of righteousness and godliness and uprightness that Jesus is and that Jesus gives, I'm not trying to put that kind of burden on you. I'm trying to tell you that you were redeemed by God. That you were loved, that you are his daughter, you are his child. God is your father. And I know that creates a lot of static for some of you. Because your dad was absent or brutal or indifferent or cruel. Your heavenly father is nothing like that. Your heavenly father looked across history and saw your need and loved you so much that he sent his willing son who willingly met, went to meet his executioners to live and die for you, to give himself, as the Bible says here, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us out of all lawlessness and purify, listen to that phrase, it's so important, purify for himself a people for his own possession. You belong to him now, just respond to his grace because grace can save anyone, so obviously it teaches us all how to live. I won't take the time to read it, but the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2 talk about people in that ancient culture in every season of life. There are young and old. There are men and women. There are slaves and there are free. And the grace of Jesus taught every single one of them how to live. But the truth of the gospel is that you've been saved by the grace of Jesus and now you are to be trained by the grace of Jesus to become like him. And then the third thing that grace does for us, and I'm done, is found in verse 13. Let me read from the beginning so you can get the flow. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come, Paul is saying. And the grace of God, Jesus on earth, is bringing salvation for all people. It's also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the time to live for Jesus, the time to be like Jesus is right now. While we're doing that, verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Grace is not only saving you, it's not only training you, it's also teaching you to wait for the Lord's return. In other words, what grace does is it puts our hope in the Lord's return. We are waiting, Paul says, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, never forget this. The story of the manger does not end at a cross. 
It ends in the second coming. We're in the present age. The grace of God has broken in. The kingdom is very near. The terms of the king and the kingdom of grace and love are being announced all over the world. But this is not the end of the story. The end of the story will be, according to Paul, our blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus again. The first coming of Jesus promises the second. And notice, please, who he is. The appearing of the glory of our great, what? God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Jesus in the entire New Testament. If anyone ever questions you, asks you, if you ever need to remind yourself, where in the world does the Bible say that Jesus is God? Here it is. We are not awaiting the return of a teacher or a prophet. We are awaiting the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what makes his arrival so extraordinary. That God himself has come and God gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness and to purify for himself, for his own possession, people who are zealous for good works. And please notice the practical effect and I'm done. This means that if grace has come to save us and to train us, we should be different and we should act differently as well. Let me make this really clear. We are people saved by grace. It is grace, Paul says, that trains us, that draws us in, that civilizes us into God's family that makes us the kind of people that Jesus died for us to be, to makes us the kind of people that God sent his son to rescue and to save, to take people who were far from him and make them into his own beloved children. Loved more than you could possibly understand because you've never had an earthly example that could perfectly portray to you how much God actually loves you. Because even in the best relationships, in parenting and in families, there is a certain point beyond which people either withdraw or simply cannot give any more love because they don't have it in them. It's not within their capacity to love and to understand and accept and embrace and give compassion and mercy the way the person they love needs. God can do all of that. And his grace has saved you. And now his grace trains you. Here's a question before we go home. If people who have been shaped, trained, formed, saved by grace, what kind of people do you think we should be? May I suggest that people who have been saved by grace and are being trained by grace should themselves be, wait for it, gracious? Isn't it surprising in 2021 how if you talk to the average unbeliever on the street, you talk to them about what a Christian is. In my personal experience, yours may differ. Maybe you're talking to smarter, better people than I've been able to find. But my experience, when I ask people, especially when people find out that I'm not only a Christian, I'm a pastor, and I ask them what word association they have with Christians or pastors, I hear everything except gracious that interesting. Now God is holy and God is righteous and there's not one person on earth beginning with the guy that's talking to you that can stand in front of God and say, I'm just like you. 
You need to let me into heaven. I need to be with you because you and I, we're alike. We're not the same, but we're alike. I'm just like you. No, that's impossible. Judge on my own merits, I'll fall and be condemned like everybody else in the world. That's why the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation even to the likes of me and to you. And then we're trained by it, and we should be, let me gently suggest to you, we should be the most gracious people on earth because we've been given so much grace. What a terrible contradiction of the gospel that someone could have their life spared and then be so demanding of other people, especially if they don't know Jesus in the first place. How could they do? How could they be any different? And then I said, to keep my promise to you and be done, that not only should we be different, we should also act differently. We should also do different things. Look at the end of verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. See, because Christians have understood that good works cannot possibly save them, many Christians have made a terrible mistake. Since good works cannot save me, I will have nothing to do with them. Since good works cannot save me, good works do not matter. No, the point of the grace of God appearing in your life, saving you and training you, is for you to be gracious the way Jesus was gracious. It's for you to occupy yourself with the same zeal and passion that drove Jesus in doing good works for others. That's why this missionary offering matters. That's why the families that you've adopted within our congregation to provide... For them, great, great, nice gifts at your own expense. That's why that counts. That's why the assistance given to victims of crime, the work that we do to help people who cannot possibly help themselves physically or spiritually, it's all an expression of grace. It's all part of being zealous for good works. If you're eternally secure, that means you should do a lot of earthly good. When I was in seminary, professors used to joke about some of us that some of us were so heavenly minded we were of no earthly good. That joke fits, that joke lands, but that joke is actually a contradiction of what the Bible says here. What it means is if we belong to God, we're free to serve others. I've been freed from my sin. My debt is canceled, and more than that, I'm dearly, sweetly, sacrificially loved. Of course I can serve you. Of course I can absorb injustice. Of course I can forgive wrongdoing. I've been forgiven everything. I've been forgiven to use one of the parables of Jesus, a debt I could never repay. I'm not going to strangle you for a simple debt between the two of us. I'm going to take the grace that he's given me and it's going to pour into my life so deeply and with such gratitude that some of it's going to spill out onto you. What I'm telling you is what this passage tells us is that because grace has come to save people and train people and to make them wait for the Lord's return, grace should change everything beginning with us. Let me gently suggest to some of you a possible course correction. And please understand this. As I told the people in the first service, sometimes people ask me after the service, did you preach that sermon to me? That was really specific, really personal. Were you aiming at me? And the answer is no. I just try to preach what the Bible says. But if you heard it and it stung you, then guess what? 
I guess it was for you. I didn't know that. So I'm not aiming this at any specific individual. I haven't actually had any instances from any of you specifically and individually about this. But when we hear and read in Titus about waiting for our blessed hope, what I think some Christians are doing is treating that promised rescue as mere escapism. I'm just going to hunker down and wait. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to be as isolated as I can from all of these people, and hopefully the Lord will come soon and get us out of all this mess. Paul says that while we are waiting for the Lord's return, we are zealous for what? For good works. We're waiting for him. We're yearning for his return. We're waiting not only for Christmas because Christmas has come. We're waiting for his second coming. But in the meantime, we're not passive. We're not frightened. We're not disengaged. We're not hateful. We're grateful and we're zealous for good works. Free to save others. Free to serve others because God has saved us. God's grace really should change everything. And it should start with us. Let's pray together. Christian, can I just ask you in closing, are you in fact gracious? You generous with your speech? You speak to people more kindly than they deserve? That's what grace would do. You generous with your time? What about your money, your possessions? Grace literally means undeserved. So if we're gracious, we're not like those caught in a dispute, arguing and leveraging every possible thing we can in our favor. We're sacrificial. We give it away even though it's not deserved. Maybe if it wasn't even asked for. Are you gracious like that? Did you say you remind people of Jesus in these last few weeks? If not, why don't you tell the Lord you're sorry? Ask him to let his grace not only save you, but train you. And if you're not a Christian, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, if you're not entirely sure the grace of Jesus has saved you, you're completely sure of your salvation, could I invite you to turn away from whatever you've been doing to save yourself? Tell Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry. I realize I can't save myself. I couldn't stand in the presence of God, the judge, and tell him I'm just like him. I know I've sinned. I know I'm far from you. Please forgive me. Give me your life. Pour your grace out on me. I know I don't deserve it, but I'm confessing my need of you, and I'm asking you to save me right here, right now. There's no magic words. That's just one way that someone might pray and talk to Jesus and ask him for his grace. Whatever words you choose, whatever your terms, you turn to him for salvation, he saves you. That's what he does. Jesus, I pray that you'd bless and forgive and welcome into the family of God those who may turn to you in this moment. And for the rest of us, Lord, teach us to live and give and serve and love generously, graciously, as you first did for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Could I ask you to stand with me? I have a final little word of encouragement for you. First of all, if you need prayer, there's people waiting here for the, at the cross. If today you've taken a step of faith or you've awakened to a spiritual question, please use the card that's in your bulletin, especially if you prayed this morning to ask Jesus to save you. We would love to know that. You can give that card on your way out in the baskets or the boxes that are on the wall beside the door. In our first service, we had Annie Huey with us. Some of you will remember her. Annie Huey's a, a young woman in her late 20s who has moved to Nicaragua to serve there as our missionary. Uh, she had to leave to another commitment after being in the first service, but I wanted to tell you about her because she's a single American girl in a very difficult country called Nicaragua. Brutal government, chronic violence, a lot of poverty, a lot of need, constant danger. And she's there to serve the Lord. She's doing a good job. She's been there a year. I wish you could see her because it puts a face on what we do here. When we pray about a missions offering, we give to a Christmas missions offering. It's not to a concept. It's always to a person like Annie who uses that money to do things like buy airfare to go back to the hard spot where she doesn't have hardly any friends like herself. A lot of people, a lot of young people would say, well, that's, that's, my cue to, that's my cue to step back. She sees a greater need, so instead of stepping back, she's moving forward. Never forget, any offering you give, whether it's to the general fund of this church or to our missions, through our Christmas missions offering or just regular missions giving, it's never a concept, it's never abstract, it's always people, it's always souls. It's orphans and crime victims and ordinary people that haven't had a bad life but are facing death because they don't know Jesus. It's always and only for them, for the extension of the gospel to them through the ministries we do here, through the preaching of the word from this pulpit, through young missionaries who bravely do what hardly anybody is willing to do, like Annie Huey. So pray for her if you see her before she goes back to Tennessee, join her family there for Christmas. I was really moved. She came a few days to California just to see us, just so we could talk for a little while before she went home to see her mom and dad. Very moving. She's part of our family and always will be. God bless you. Love you. It's a little early yet, but Merry Christmas.